Hey, so, <clears throat> by the way, Richard introduced himself. My name's Ed griffin and I'm one of the pastors also on our staff uh, at Church on the Trail. So I, I introduced myself like I'm supposed to. Listen, man, we are in the, the last week of a series that we're, we've called The Greatest Chapter. We're walking through, really, we're walking through the whole book of Romans, um, but we're at the, in the last week of walking through Romans chapter 8. And so for about a month, maybe five weeks, we have been digging into Romans chapter 8. Last week we were <clears throat> started in verse 28, uh, did 28, 29, and 30. Today we're going to be in verse 31 through the end, uh, through the end of the chapter. So let me uh, let me pick this up in in verse 31. And Paul says, "What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, God is for us. Who can be against us?" And so Paul here in verse 31, he's asking. Um, He's asking his Roman audience, because remember this is written in the first century and it's written to a church in Rome, that that church in Rome is primarily um, a, a Christian, so his letter is primarily written to a believing audience. And so he asks them uh, this question, and in a very real sense, I believe that he's asking me and you this same thing today. He's like saying, y'all, think, uh, think about the evidences that God's for you. Think about the evidences in our lives that God is for us, that he's got your back. You know, and then he says, Look, what do you think about that? What is it that you think about these evidences that God has got your back, that he's got you? And I believe that an easy way to do this for us today is by, and this may sound weird, but I don't think so, um, by replacing the words, these things that are in that verse, uh, with some phrases that Paul uses in the, in the past in Romans chapter 8. Arguably, almost, you could pick some stuff, even in the first seven chapters, to replace for us, to make us think clearly about this, to replace in there with these things. For example, if that what sounded like nonsense, what I just said, it would be like, what then shall we say to the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus from Romans 8.1 or what then shall we say to the fact that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses in verse 26 or 27 or what then shall we say to the fact that we know that for those who love God He works all things together for the good for good for those called according to His purpose from Romans uh, 8.28 and so we're going to put up on the screen and it's a fill in the blank in your worship guide what then shall I say to the fact that blank and I left it blank on the screen because I want you to think about your life and the way your brain is wired up and what is it that today as this text travels down to us in 2020 knowing that it was not written to me and you it was written to a Roman audience in the first century but as it travels down to us and the principles in it travel down to us what are these things for you what is it that blows you away that's what I want you to put in that blank. For me, personally, it's Romans 8.1. It's Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is unbelievable to me, personally. For me, in other words, what then shall I say to the fact that I'm so blown away, Lord, that you would save a wretch like me? Bottom line, I've said this before, I think, from up here, but I wake up every day and I just literally cannot believe I'm saved. Every day, like every day of my life. Like, why in the world would you ever save me? I'm blown away. That is 
There's a lot of these things that I could put in there, but that's the primary one for me. I just want you to think about for you what it is and put it in that blank. I, th I believe that Paul is telling us here in this latter part of Romans 8 that God has continuously throughout history acted on behalf of his people. He's acted for us. He didn't have to act for us. We surely don't deserve that he acts for us. If you deserve it, raise your hand. Right? We don't deserve it, but he does. Over and over, he's acted for us. It begs the question, really, just how much is he for us? Like, what's the, what's the scale? Like, how big is his, his for usness? If you're new to Church on the Trail, I make up words all the time. How big is his forestness? Hashtag that somebody out there in Facebook land. Well, that question, he answers it in verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, well, how much? Paul answers, how much? With so much that he gave up his only son. So much that he gave up his son to die for us. And it is only through that death on that cross that we are made acceptable to God. That word spare that is used in that verse, it's the same word that is used uh, for withheld in Genesis chapter 22. And some of you have listened to me in the past would say, how could it be? Because Genesis was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. Well, it's the Greek translation called the Septuagint that I'm referring to. And that was way too deep and doctrinal probably and probably unnecessary. Bottom line is it's the same word that in Genesis 22 uh, when God said to Abraham, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He did not spare the Lord. God did not spare his son. Abraham did not withhold his son. He was willing to sacrifice his son. So it's, like, it's almost like Paul is saying, this God that I'm talking about, this, this is the God who, who breathed everything into existence. He spoke everything into existence. It's him. And he willingly and he intentionally and he deliberately gave up his son. He didn't even spare him. So he's telling us, don't go down the road that the one who loved you enough to not even spare his own son is not going to provide what you need. He will. He provides to believers. Look at Galatians chapter 5. He provides us with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 3. With love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and, and all of these things, he provides that. He provides believers with deliverance from the struggling and the, and the suffering that is in a sinful world. It is the gift of eternal life. It's the gift of eternal life that he provides to us. He provides for us a way and a means and, and the tools to be conformed into the image of his son. We talked about that a lot last week, about being conformed into the image of his son, and that sounds churchy language, but it, and I'm, this is even going to sound more churchy. That's called sanctification. That's our process of growing in what? In Christ-likeness. And he provides a way for that to happen. This picture, at least right here in Romans 8, that Paul is painting, it is almost like he's painting this image uh, of our heavenly father who is on one side of this scale he's, he's weighing out our eternal separation from him how monumental that is our eternal separation from him 
and on this side of the scale, the sacrifice of his son. He weighs those two things out, and he has had choice to make. And he made that choice, and he deliberately chose to sacrifice his son for us. He knew exactly what he was doing, man. Stuff don't sneak up on God. He wanted man to be delivered from the struggling and the suffering in the world, and there was only one way. Don't buy this lie that there's multiple ways. There's not multiple ways. We are members of an exclusive club that everybody can join, but there's only one way. Somebody had to pay the penalty for the sin, right? If God is just, can you say just? God is just. The sin's got to be paid for. You know, Susan, you want to pay for your own sin? I don't. Susan's my wife. I don't. I don't want to pay for my own sin. I could. I could choose that, of course. I got to choose her. I could choose to pay for it myself by what? Being eternally separated from him forever, for eternity. I'm going to choose the cross. Because the sin's got to be paid for. So therefore, God hands over his son to die for us on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute. And this verse says, he who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is unbelievable, crazy, ginormous, amazing love. And we can see just, really just how, how crazy that love is in that he did it right in the middle of our sinfulness. Right in the seconds after we spit in his face on the cross. It's Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It doesn't literally say we spit in his face, but that's what we did. And he died for us when we were in the middle of doing that. Y'all, it's unbelievable love. It's unimaginable love. Look at verse 33. It says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, it was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who, enters, uh, who indeed is interceding for us. Now Paul says, who's going to accuse God's children? Who's going to do it? Who's it going to be? And when he asked this question, who's going to bring charges, y'all remember, and I'm going to repeat this, I'm sure, again today, this is, a, this is a courtroom scene. Really, all of Romans is like a courtroom, particularly Romans chapter 8. He says, who, who's going to bring the charges? And when he asks that question, who's going to charge God's people, he's not implying in the way he said, he's not implying that nobody is going to do it. The very name Satan means accuser. Satan's going to accuse there's never been a shortage of enemies that make accusations against God's people. You think people today in 2020 make accusations against Christians? Like, are you kidding? If not, you're living under a rock. It happens every day, every day. But what Paul is saying is that no accusation is going to stand. It won't stand even for a minute because God is the one who justifies he is a justifier. He is a way maker. He is a promise keeper. He is a miracle worker. He is the justifier. He's the judge and he surely will justify his own. As you sit here today, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you may very well be concerned about your sin. I am. Very, you may be very well concerned and you may wonder whether in the end that those sins might just tip the scales of justice against you and in favor of the accuser. Have you ever thought that? 
Have you ever thought, all this dumbness that I've done, all these sins that I've done, I, I, must, have, I must be lost. Or I must have lost my salvation. Have you ever felt that way? Most people have. When Satan accuses us, and he will, often, Jesus is our defender. Jesus is the defense attorney. He is our advocate. He's the advocate for the defense. He's the one that is standing at the right hand of the Father pleading our case for us. Picture that. Like picture Jesus every day, every minute of every day, he's pleading our case before the Father. And we as believers, this is like huge assurance. We win. Do you all understand that? When you're a Christian, you win. It doesn't mean the path to the, to the stage where you get your trophy is always pleasant. It's often unpleasant. But we win 100% of the time. 100% of the time we win. It's super, these verses super reminiscent of, of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who wrote about 800 or so years earlier. In chapter 5, Isaiah wrote this. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary, Isaiah writes. Let him come near to me. Bring him on, is what Isaiah is saying. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who's going to declare? He didn't say gonna. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And then verse 34. Who is to condemn? First he said who's going to bring charges. Now he says who is to condemn. And it focuses on the charges just like verse 33, but it's in the future tense. Who is going to condemn? Moving down the, the corridor of time, who is going to condemn? He says, it's Jesus that died. It's Jesus that was resurrected. It's Jesus that's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Divine courtroom, y'all. God has already declared us pardoned. We're pardoned. We are pardoned. It doesn't mean we didn't do what we did because we did do what we did. But we're pardoned for it. Any future charge that is made against you, the judge throws it out the window. Somebody say amen. Because there's, are you going to do stuff in your life that is worthy of a charge? Say yes. What does the justifier say? I kicked it out the window. Jesus is not going to condemn those for whom he came to die for. He's not. It's not Jesus that is condemning you when you feel condemnation. No matter how much or even the intensity of it, how, how much we struggle or how much we suffer through the sin and the shame of the world that we live in, God delivers us no matter how far we may fall, no matter how discouraged you and I may become. If we are a new creation, if we have truly been born again, he reaches down. You know, there's a famous art picture. That's probably a dumb way to say that of a hand reaching down and a hand reaching up, I think about that all the time. Because when I get in a pit, I know that hand is always there. No matter what, the hand is always there. He picks us up and he justifies us and he continues to conform us every day into the image of his son. He doesn't leave us down and leave us defeated and leave us discouraged nor does he go around charging us with sin and shame. It's outside of his nature. It is who he is. When they were singing that song a minute ago and they were talking about who he is, 
you know that God is, he is exactly who he says he is. He is exactly who this book says he is. He can do exactly what he says he can do. Don't let the accuser tell you otherwise. He justifies me and you, and he continues this, this work of forgiveness and grace in our lives every single day. Let me ask you this. Do you think, and maybe you're watching and you think this, or maybe you're sitting right here and you think this, or maybe you maybe have, it, through an event in your life, you have thought this, that because you aren't, quote, good enough for God, that he won't save you. That that old salvation thing, yeah, that's for somebody else. Or that you're not, quote, good enough that he's not going to grow you, that he's just kind of put you to the curb. You ever feel like salvation is for everybody else but you? Understand that that's a lie from hell. When you start feeling like that, open up your Bible app, open up the pages of the Bible, go to Romans 8, go to verse 31, pray on verses 31, 2, 3, and 4, and make those verses your friend. If God gave up his son for you, he is not going to hold back the gift of salvation and the gift of sanctification. He's not. He's not going to hold back on provision, and he's not going to hold back on, on growing you. He is not going to turn. This is outside of his nature. He's not going to turn right around and condemn you. It is not God that is condemning you. He is not going to withhold anything that he decides that you need to live a life for him. He's not. In fact, in a nutshell, look at verse 34. Look at the bottom uh, of the screen. I marked four things, and these are four truths. Verse 34, packed with true, truth claims about the Lord. Number one, he died for you. Number one, he was raised for you. Number three, he was exalted for you. And number four, he is interceding for you every day. Do you know how big a deal that is? You have got the God of the universe interceding on your behalf every single second of every minute of every day. No matter what you've done, no matter where your circumstances find you, if you are a Christ follower, he has got your back in a way that you cannot even imagine. He died for you, he was raised for you, he was exalted for you, and he is interceding for you constantly. What kind of amazing assurance is in that? Listen, like Romans, the whole, really the whole letter, the whole book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 8, it is more than some, some theological explanation of God's redeeming grace. It is an exclamation and, and, and a huge probably a huge explanation of God's redeeming grace, but it's way more than that. It is a love letter. It's a letter of comfort, and it's a letter of confidence, and it's a letter of assurance. And I believe that the principles that are addressed in Romans, and particularly chapter 8, they are addressed like down through time straight to us in 2020. And so Paul keeps asking these questions. Look at verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In verse 37 he says, no, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So now this argument has moved from an accuser making accusations to a divider trying to 
convince you that you can be separated from his love. He says, who is it? What is it that can sever the link between Christ and Christians? Don't you know? Don't you know that the devil's prowling around like a roaring lion trying to eat you and trying to sever the link between you and the Lord? It's what he does. And so Paul says, who is it that can do that? Short black and white answer is this. Nothing and no one. Nothing. Nothing can separate a Christian from Christ's love. Can't be done. That's an amenable thing. And then Paul lists several um, situations maybe where we might think and maybe have thought past tense we, different things that could come between us and God. And he says tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and, and nakedness and danger and sword. And when he says sword, he's talking about literally being executed. On some super, some, some super real level, Paul knew from his own experiences that nothing could separate, none of those things could separate believers from God. That means, this means that the love of Christ also doesn't separate us from those particular circumstances. And when those particular circumstances come into our life in the middle of those which are devastating things, the love of Christ with us is, is with us right in the middle of it. Right, right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. You find your, anybody ever found themselves in a pit? Raise your hand if you found yourself in a pit. Do you, know, do you know that when you're in that pit, and the longer you're in that pit, the worse it is, and someone will say to you, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. When you're in that pit, that person says that to you, your initial answer, your initial thought is, no, there's not. If you've ever suffered from depression or know anybody that's suffered from depression, you're in a pit, there's light at the end of the tunnel, your first thought is, no, there's not. This book says there is. And this book is true and inerrant and infallible. And here's what I know. I don't care how deep the pit is. That pit could be five miles deep. The Lord can get his hand deeper than you can get. And he can get his hand underneath you. And he can pull you up. And he is in the pit with you every time. That is the assurance that is in Scripture. It is the assurance. He will never forsake you. Never. He will never leave you. Too many people, and I'm talking about even believers, right, believe that God has stopped loving them. But we see it in the homeless ministry all the time. People on the street, the first thing that pops in their mind is God has forsaken them. They've done this or they've done that or you've done this or that or you've thought this or that, and God has removed his love from you. you got a refund on his love. You had to give it back to him. You, they feel unworthy. You ever felt unworthy of God's love? It's not God making you feel unworthy. It's the devil in your ear accusing you and deceiving you into thinking that. Because you failed too many times or you were disobedient too many times or you've fallen short. Get in line, bro. I'm in the front of that line. But none of that is going to affect God's love. If any of you that have children, there is nothing, nothing that any one of your children could do that could affect your love for them. You could be ticked at them. You could pull your belt off and I'm popping them all over the house. But none, none of that, none of that. You know, I spanked my youngest son one time. You know what he said? He turned around and said, is that all you got? 
I broke the belt loop getting my belt off, right? And then he's screaming for defects. It was funny. It was funny. But here's the deal, man. There's nothing that your child could do that affects your love. You could be mad as rip, but it's not. It's so when you're a parent, you kind of can really begin to understand that, that kind of love because the love is not affected. The sin is the sin, and there's consequences for the sin, but the love is not affected. Don't buy the lie when, when the devil gets in your ear. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to put something up on the screen. Yeah, uh, this. It's in your worship guide. I want you to cut it out of your worship guide. I'm pretty sure it's in the worship guide. Put it on your refrigerator. Take a picture of it. Put it on the dashboard of your car something. There is no circumstance. There's no situation. There's no event that can cause him to turn away from you. Nothing can. No matter how terrible, how severe the situation, it cannot separate a believer from the love of Christ. Circumstances are not evidence of the absence of God. Do y'all get that statement? Circumstances, the pit, are not evidence of the absence of God. God loves us in the middle of whatever circumstance that we're in. Please know that the Scripture says that all over the place. In all of these circumstances, we can be assured, and this is in, in these verses, we can be assured that we are not just a conqueror. Is that what the text says? No. We can be more than a conqueror. And that first century Roman audience would have been thinking about Alexander the Great, and they would have been thinking about Caesar. Some of them would have been thinking about Herod, these great, and by great I mean big and powerful, not great like good. Alexander the Great conquered almost all of Asia. That's what's in their mind. My goodness, Paul says we can be more than that. But not just more than that. It's because of the love of Christ. Let me tell you about some landmark decisions. 1954, there was a landmark Supreme Court case decision. Brown versus the Topeka, Kansas Board of Education. Anybody know that case? Anybody know what that case did? Somebody tell me. Ended segregation in the public school system. Did it stop racism in the public schools? Say, absolutely it did not stop racism in schools. It didn't. But since that day in 1954 when that ruling came down in, uh, in, in about the Topeka Board of Education, since that, a law, when a lawyer stands up in a courtroom, he can look back to that. It could be 2020. He can look back to that case from 1954 to legitimize his client's rights. It was a landmark decision because of something that happened in the past. He can look back to that actual event in the past and appeal to that event. 1865, the 13th Amendment. Somebody tell me what the 13th Amendment did. Come on, history people. 13th Amendment abolished slavery in 1865. Landmark decision. Five years later in 1870, the 15th Amendment gave the right to vote to people regardless of race or color or previous condition of servitude, which mean, means if they had been a slave, they still got the right to vote. 1870, landmark decision. 1964, the Civil Rights Act. Another landmark decision that gave equal opportunity to all. We can look back to those events that happened in history and we can appeal to those events. Does that mean, I want to ask this the right way, that all the evils that those landmark decisions were, were designed to address, 
Did all those evils just magically disappear? Absolutely not. They did not. Y'all are all good history people. Here's what it means, though. It means that there's something in the past to use as an appeal when messiness and ugliness and nastiness and sin shows up in the present. We get to go back and we get to appeal to that. When somebody wants to deny the right of a child to go to a certain school, a lawyer can reach back to that decision in 1954, that decision in 1954 that freed people of color to go to any school they can get in. If somebody tries to say my friend Ed Bush is part of our church family, African-American guy, when anybody, somebody tries to say that he or a guy named Vinnie Botts, who I just reconnected with, we played football together when we were kids. When anybody says that either one of them can't go in, because their skin color is different than mine, can't go in this restaurant or they can't drink from this water fountain, we can go back and pull from the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that says, no, 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 you can go anywhere you want as an American citizen. We can appeal to that event in the past. 2,000 years ago, y'all, there was a, the landmark decision of all landmark decisions. Jesus Christ willingly hung on that cross right outside city gates in Jerusalem between heaven and earth with all of hell watching at the time. And he paid the price for your sin. He paid the price for my sin. Guys, that was the landmark decision, right? And so when Satan whispers in your ear, it is coming. I promise you it's coming. When he whispers in your ear and he tries to convince you that your needs won't be met, you can appeal back to that landmark decision and the word says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can say, no, 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 Mr. Devil, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When he whispers in your ear, you're a failure. Devil ever whispered in your ear, you're a failure? He has whispered that in my ear. And I can say, no, 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 no. No, I'm more than a conqueror. The word tells me I'm more than a conqueror. When the devil whispers in your ear, with plans to ruin your life, you can appeal back to what happened on the cross. When the devil whispers in your ear, and I believe this happens all the time for a Christ follower, when the devil whispers in your ear, remember what you did last night? Remember what you did last night? You think you're a believer, but you're not. Y'all, every day, and you can appeal back to what happened on that cross, and you can say, no, no, no. He died for me on that cross. He paid my penalty. The sin had to be paid for. He paid the penalty for my sin. And nothing, Paul says, nothing can snatch you out of the hand of the Father. So get away from me. You can say that. It's 2,000 years ago, what happened on that cross, that landmark decision establishes that all of us as believers are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for you and for me. Use that right now. Like, use that right now. And I believe the mountaintop, pinnacle moment, rounding third base, heading for home sort of conclusion of, the, of arguably the greatest chapter in the Scripture is found in the assurance that is in these next two uh, verses. I'm going to say this is the grand finale. That's the name of this message, the grand finale. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, I'm sure. Some translations use the word um, persuaded or convinced. 
It's a firm conviction. In our way of talking in the South, we would say there ain't no doubt. It's like Paul saying there ain't no doubt. I am positive about this. He introduces this with that little phrase. You know, we sometimes say I think. I try not to say I think. And my prayer is that for me and you, when we're talking about eternal issues, that we would become people that don't think a certain way, but become people who are convinced, convinced. People who would say there ain't no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind. Are you a believer? I have no doubt. You go into heaven, I have no doubt because nothing can snatch me away from the Father. For Paul, conviction and certainty was a matter of faith. For me and you, conviction and certainty are a matter of faith. But it's not blind, ignorant faith, right? It's faith, and for Paul it was the same way. It's faith that is confirmed by God's Word. It's faith that when I pick this up, this, this puts my faith on steroids, right? It's faith that is, that is confirmed by the Word. It's faith that's confirmed by my experience. And it's faith that is confirmed by a mind that has been renewed, a mind that has been transformed. It's like when Paul is saying in 2 Timothy in chapter 1, and Paul is, is um, coaching and mentoring this young pastor in Ephesus named Timothy. And Timothy, there seems to be this tension in Timothy between Yes, I'm a servant of the gospel. Yes, I'm a slave to Christ, but I'm still experiencing suffering. Paul, why am I still experiencing suffering? And Paul says in in verse 12, he says, But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, it's the same word, that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I believe that I'm a believer, and I believe that Jesus guards me until he brings me home. It's like I got a personal escort through life until I go home to be with him for eternity. So Paul is convinced that in his security with Christ. He's convinced in our security with Christ, and we should be. Nothing can separate us. And he says in these verses, he he says in both death and in the jacked upness of life, we will be in the presence of, of God's love all the time. He says no spiritual forces angels or demons are powerful enough to undo what God has already done. The angels and the demons and the whatevers, they don't get to undo the pardon. We have been pardoned and nothing is powerful enough to undo that pardon. No, he says nothing in time, no events that, that will have, no events that happen in now or no events that will ever come can threaten our security in Christ. If persecution's right around the corner, it is not going to be able to separate us from the Lord, no, no, no powers, Satan or the government or pick a power, whatever it is, it's not powerful enough to have an effect on our relationship with the Lord. He says neither height nor depth, and those are astronomical terms, saying everything as far as you can go, none of that can separate you from the love of Christ. And then the coup de grace is, is in verse 39. It's where I'm going to land. He says, nor anything else in creation. And that is like him saying, I just gave you this list in these verses, but if I missed anything, let me sum this all up with any, anything in creation. So like, let me be clear about this. That's like what Paul is saying. Anything in all creation. Well, is there anything that's not in all creation? No. It's Paul's way of saying everything. Nothing at all will ever be able to take away 
from God's love nor his purpose in your life. You have a purpose. And, and as a Christ follower, your purpose is bathed and wrapped up in the love of Christ. And nothing can snatch the love of Christ nor your purpose. And so Paul says it's a, it's a simple, kind of compelling, clear thing. He says once you are in his care, it is impossible to be separated from the Lord. His voluntary death and resurrection is proof of his unconquerable love. Nothing can separate us from his presence. This whole book, he tells us all throughout this book about his love. This is one big long love letter. And he does that so that I believe for two or three reasons. Number one, the intent of this book is to lead lost sinners into a saving relationship with the guy that wrote the book. Big overarching purpose of this book. It's not an exhaustive history book of every event that ever happened on the planet. Don't put that on it, Ricky Bobby. That ain't what it's about. You know, it's not, it doesn't record every event that ever happened. It is a letter from God to you as a lost sinner to lead you into a relationship with him, number one. Number two, it gives us great assurance. Great assurance that once we are in his care, that we cannot be not in his care. And then it's a book that, that teaches us how to grow and be conformed in the image of his son. If all of us lived the way the scripture said to live, then we would every day be more conformed into his image. And my encouragement, I'm going to end with this, my encouragement is this. If you're not living with that assurance, you can. If you're not a Christ follower, you're definitely not living with that assurance. But you can. You can. It's an exclusive club that anybody can be a member of. Period. Period. He wants to be your daddy. Like, he wants to be your daddy. And so, it's not this complicated thing. We repent. Y'all, if you would, close your eyes, bow your heads. And look, I'm going to say, if, if this is you today, to say this prayer, but I want you to understand that these words don't save you. Jesus saves you. These words are a way for you to probably make it feel make you feel good, maybe, but, but you're saved when there's a change. You are saved when you invite him to save you and if the words are real. So I don't want it just to be empty, vain words. But here, here it is. Lord, I am a sinner. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin and I believe that your death on that cross saved me. Lord, save me right now. In Jesus' name, amen. And he will Y'all, he will. And my encouragement to you that are believers here today or watching on, on, on uh, YouTube or Facebook, live in the assurance that the Word gives you about your salvation. Now, that assurance is not a license to act like an idiot, right? That's a real shepherding, pastoral thing to say. Don't abuse. You're spitting on the cross when you do that, right? Don't live in a way that makes a mockery out of the assurance, live in a way that people, y'all, will look at you and say, there's something different about you, and I want whatever it is. That's the way to live in the assurance that Paul's talking about, y'all, in Romans 8. Let me turn it back over to the worship team.